I don't know about you, but this series has been so helpful for me because I've begun to recognize again and again that these subtle things that I think are actually lies from the enemy that he's using to isolate me and to defeat me in my thinking. And so the interesting thing about the story that we're going to look at tonight is this takes place thousands of years ago before you and I were ever born. And he actually said this very lie that we're looking at tonight. He said it that's recorded three different times. This, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Um, I have many, many times in my life. And the interesting thing is I think sometimes we look at scripture, we read these stories, and we're like, I, I really can't relate to you. You lived before the iPhone, before technology, before, any, before a car, you know, um, with camels and chariots, and that's just not my life, you know. We have smog. They didn't have smog. I mean, they don't. It was just a totally different time period. We can't relate. But yet, you see that the schemes of the enemy have been successful throughout all of time. That they haven't really changed that much because he's really good at what he does. And he brings success by planting these lies in our mind because we don't recognize them as lies. They're believable. They're plausible. They're very relatable to what we're going through. And in fact, we don't resist them at all. It's like we welcome them in. We feed, yes, I'm so tired. I welcome you. I'll feed you. And you can multiply in my mind. And so it just gets bigger and bigger. And then more lies grow. And it gets magnified in my mind so that I don't even realize I've believed a lie or that it's isolated me from other people because it's just become my natural way of thinking. And so tonight we're going to look at a lie that to me, has a lot of different facets of what it could look like. For some of you, it could look like this. Like, I'm the only one who didn't grow up like this. When I come to USC and I step on this campus, I think if people saw where I grew up, like, they would know I do not belong. I mean, rural Oklahoma with my roots. I Put me in Wranglers and cowboy boots, and I, I mean, I'm at home. But this, like, name brands, I'd never seen Louis Vuitton until I moved here. I didn't know any of the designers. I, I didn't grow up like that. And so I think, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't grow up like this. Or... Some of you in your classes, and you're trying to get into med school, into law school, and you're thinking, I'm the only one that's not cheating. I'm the only one that's trying to do things right. How am I ever going to make it into med school, competing against these people who are cheating? Or maybe I'm the only one who doesn't have enough money. I'm around all these people, and they go out to eat, and they go see these movies, and they have all this fun. And I'm just scraping by. Like, I'm eating ramen and peanut butter and jelly, and, and that's just my life. I can't relate to these people who have, seem to have more money than they know what to do with. Or I'm the only one with health restrictions. Like, I don't have that kind of stamina. I can't keep up that kind of pace. I have to rest. I can't go at that speed. I'm the only one who can't seem to pull these all-nighters and be fine the next day. Or maybe in this climate that we live in, I'm the only one who disagrees. I'm the only one who sees it from this angle, and why do they all see it from that angle, and why am I the only one who can't be on the same page as them? And then I'm the only one who isn't getting what I want, because last time I spoke about it's not what I want. So, um, But I feel that a lot. But the enemy's intent in these lies is really to separate us and to isolate us from community, from people who will tell us the truth. And in my isolation and in your isolation, the lies are really magnified in our mind. So it's like, yes, I am the only one, and no one understands. We kind of wear that on our T-shirt, and it's our mantra. And We walk into a room. Some of you may have even walked in here tonight thinking, I can't really relate to these people. I really don't even know why I'm here. Maybe you have a background or a past that you feel like nobody else has in this place. Or maybe 
you have a trauma that you have lived through and that you're burying the wounds and the scarfs from that. And like, these people can't relate to that. I'm the only one who carries this load. Or you, know, you walk in and you're like, these people just aren't like me. Like, I feel like there's like levels of cool and maybe they're not at the same level as me or like they don't value what I value. And so these conversations can be awkward. And so I just don't fit here. I'm the only one who doesn't belong here in this place. But the truth is, this room is full of people who can understand. They may look different on the outside, but there are stories that God has written in each of our lives that we can talk to each other about and really bring encouragement and life to each other. So tonight, we are going to look at a man who really struggled with this idea of, I'm the only one. In fact, he used these very words in speaking to God. I don't know if you guys have ever used these in crying out to God, I'm the only one. Why did you make me so different? Why did you make my hair this curly? Like, couldn't it be just a little wavy and I could blend in with people? But people remember me because of my hair, you know? It's like there's nothing I can do about it. But Elijah, who we're going to look at tonight, felt this thousands of years ago, and we feel it too, whether it's in our appearance or the things that have happened in our past or our hearts or just our physical makeup, whatever it is, Satan has used this tactic again and again every generation because it's been successful. So tonight, I'm going to race through this very significant man's life in hopes that it will whet your appetite to read it on your own. I have... um, I think my favorite part of speaking to you guys is actually the research. I have just, I just love it. It's like my favorite thing to do. Um, <clears throat> I would gladly research your papers for you um, for a small price. Um, I just love the information fact gathering aspect of it. So I was trying to figure out a way to help this kind of stick in your mind because there's a lot of moving pieces and we're going to move really fast. So I found some images that Rebecca's going to put on the screen, but not yet. Um, My fear in doing this is that you guys would think this is kind of like a cartoon or a mythical story or a Hollywood movie kind of storyboard. And I'm really praying against it, that you will see that this really happened, that this man really existed, that if you pinched him and twisted it, he would bruise too, that he breathed the same air and that he really existed. But these images are really to help you follow along in the story because there's a lot that happens in his life. Some of you may be more familiar with Elijah. Some of you, this may be a new story. So if you want to read it on your own, it's in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Kings like 16 through 19. It's not very long, but it is action-packed. This is the stuff of like Hollywood blockbusters, but there's no, it's, I mean, this would be an amazing, you, um, not songwriters. What are you, Maddie? Screenwriters. You could write a song about this, but it would be a terrifying song. But um, the screenplay, the special effects would cost you more than you'll make in a lifetime because it's got an incredible special effects. But this is because God showed up in the story, and it just will blow your mind. So this actually happened. This is not a piece of fiction. So we're going to start. This took place thousands and thousands of years ago. In fact, Jesus referenced it. So you're thinking, you know, I don't know if this actually happened. Well, you think, well, Jesus, who prophesied his death and resurrection said that it happened, we can go with the one. No, have you ever known anyone else who's been able to do that? No. So let's go with what Jesus said. Jesus said it happened, so we're going to go with Jesus. Okay, so this is ancient Israelite history. There's two kingdoms. They've split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And when Israel had no godly king, God would send a prophet as the mouthpiece. And so Ahab was this king, and he was an evil king. And so God sent Elijah to speak to Ahab, and to help, you know, guide the people. So 
Ahab was the most wicked king of Israel that had been king up to that point in Israel's history. He was the eighth king of Israel. He was the king about 70 years after Solomon died and the kingdom was split. He married a woman that you may have heard of. Um, her name was Jezebel. You might be familiar with her from English Lit. You know that anybody, no girl ever wants to be called Jezebel. You may not know anything about the real Jezebel, but I'm about to tell you because it is offensive. She was evil to the core of her being. And so, guys, don't ever call any girl Jezebel. It's not nice at all. So she was a foreign woman, and Ahab knew the law, and he disobeyed the law, just totally disregarded it, and married this foreign woman who brought in idol worship. And so up to that point, Israel had worshipped Yahweh, Jehovah, you know, God of, of the Jews. But once she married Ahab, she established Baal worship as kind of the national religion. So idolatry became very prevalent in the culture. Also, Ahab was just this really defiant king. In fact, God told him specifically, do not rebuild the walls of Jericho, this ancient city that God wanted to serve as a reminder to the people. What did Ahab do? He rebuilt the wall. And so he was just this man who was described in 1 Kings 16, verse 30. He did more to provoke the Lord than all the other kings before. How would you like to be known for that? He made God angrier than anybody else had made God. Like, that's what he is known for, this evil, evil, evil king. So then God sends Elijah. Like, wouldn't you like to be the one? Okay, I'll go to this king who's defiant and evil, and I'll warn him. God, sign me up for that task. So Elijah announces to him, there's not going to be any rain. There's not even going to be dew. There's going to be an extreme drought. And I'm sure that conversation went really well. Can you just imagine this king who's like, Oh, thanks for that. So Elijah fled, which was a good thing. God wanted him to do that and directed him on where to go. And so God sent him to this ravine where a, a brook kind of ran through so he could have water. I mean, we've been in a drought and really enjoyed this rain. I mean, I've never seen L.A. this green. This is beautiful. So think about, I mean, we weren't even around. L.A. wasn't that bad. The drought that we had times 100. So Elijah's alone drinking water out of the book, and God provides ravens, these birds, to bring him meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread and at night, so twice a day. I don't wouldn't think about, for me, like the germs, and I was like, is this cooked? Like the meat, like I just you don't think too much about it, but God protected Elijah. It did not make him sick. It would have, I would have been very ill, like a bird's mouth. I just can't even picture, but that's how God chose to provide this food. Like, he sustained Elijah's life through birds, birds that would typically, you know, you'd be fighting for your food. They'd be coming and taking the food from you, but he's bringing the food that way. And so, but then eventually the drought is so bad, the brook dries up, and so God says, okay, go to the city, Elijah, and there's a widow there who I've been working in her heart as well. And so Elijah runs into this widow who's collecting sticks to burn because she has such little food left. She's making one last meal for herself and her son, and then they're going to die. And that's the woman that Elijah goes to. Like, Can I have some food? And she's like, uh, I don't have anything to give you, sir. I'm, we're, we're dying, me and my son. And so she trusts God, and she gives Elijah some food. And God sustains the oil and the flour enough for for a long, long time, so they never go without food. 
Like they don't know how this pot keeps having oil and keeps having flour, but it does, and they are keep they're able to continue to eat, which is just a miracle. But Elijah doesn't realize this. All in the meantime, while he's being fed and the widow's taking care of him, Ahab is on the hunt for Elijah, and he is angry, and he's ticked because there's a drought, and he blames Elijah. And so Ahab is sending people looking, find this man. Like I want to see this man. So God says, okay, Elijah, it's time to go back to Ahab. And when Elijah and Ahab meet, I'm sure words are exchanged. That is not documented. I don't know what was said, but I don't think this evil man had some nice things to say to Elijah at that point. So Elijah says, how about we have a duel to decide whose God is really God? Because at that point, you know, the idol worship had just continued and become more and more prevalent while he's gone. And so he said, okay, you gather your prophets, the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and I will make an altar to my God, and you make an altar to your God, and then we'll call down, we'll call on our gods and see whoever's God, whoever God, no, who's ever God consumes the altar, then that's how we'll know which is the real God. And so 850 prophets gather for the idol worship. And then there's Elijah with his altar. And so these 850 prophets begin by screaming and calling out to their gods, and then they're dancing, and then nothing is happening, and then they start cutting themselves, bleeding in desperation, calling down on their little G gods to please consume this by fire this altar so that everyone around, because all of these people had gathered to kind of watch which god is the real god. Does things go into, this really happened, people. This is not a, an act of fiction. I did not make this up. Maddie did not write this. This is not in any movie. So Elijah's like, okay, time's up. This has been all day long and nothing had happened. So then Elijah rebuilds his altar because I think there'd been some mayhem and things had gotten a little messy. So he rebuilds it and he says, bring some water over here. And so he pours jugs and jugs and jugs of water on this altar. I don't know if if any of you have tried to burn wet wood, but it, it doesn't burn, does it? No, it it just doesn't work. There's chemical process. I'm sure you scientists could explain. It doesn't work. In fact, there was so much water that Elijah had poured on it that there was a trench around the altar that had water in it. And so Elijah calls out to to God and and essentially says, okay, God, show him who's God. And immediately fire comes down from heaven, consumes the bull on top of the, the wood, and all the water, even in the trench, is dried up. I mean, that is God. There was nothing left. And the people said, he is the Lord, he is God. (laughs) We'll go with that one um, because you spent all day and you are bloody and mangled and your gods did nothing. And then the story takes a really interesting twist because Jezebel finds out about this. She wasn't there at the time. Ahab went back and told her because really Jezebel's kind of the ruling force because she's so evil. And she says, Elijah, Wait until I get my hands on you because you are done. You are deader than dead. You are done. So Elijah, who's just had this incredible experience, and God has shown up in this miraculous, huge way, flees for his life. He's he's scared of this woman who's threatened his life. He's decided, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to die by the hands of Jezebel. I'm out of here. So for a hundred miles for two weeks, he runs away to the southernmost part of the kingdom. He totally forgot what God had just done, that fire had come down from heaven. He's like, I have never, I can't even picture that in my mind. Totally forgot all about it. He was with a companion. He said, you stay here. He went another day out into the desert all alone, finds a tree, 
and he prays to die. He had just seen God. We were like, Elijah, what are you thinking? You're scared of this woman. You should have been like, meet me in the alley. Like, (laughs) my God, look what my God just did. But this woman has caused so much fear and anxiety in Elijah that he ran away. And I wonder if other people look at my life and they're like, Aaron, why are you so worried? I just don't understand why this is so, like, causing such fear in your life. Look at God's faithfulness in your life again and again and again. So what's the big deal? But Elijah was like us, just like you and me. Like, how quickly our minds just forget what God has done and who God is and the power of God in his life. So Elijah prayed underneath this tree to die. Like, I don't even want to live anymore. I just want to die. And, you know, I think on his journey out to the desert because he really wanted to die, I think he was rehearsing a lot of these lies that we've talked about over and over again. It's not fair. It's not fair that there's not more people following you, God. It's not fair. I am the only one following you. This is too hard to follow you in a culture where people are going to such extents to cut themselves and bleed in order to worship something that is not real and has no power to save them. I don't want this for my life. I'm done. taking. I think over and over again on this journey, he'd rehearsed all these things so it became so huge in his mind. He so isolated himself from the truth and from people who could speak the truth that he just wanted to die. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I was like, I'm done, God. I'm finished. No more. I can't take any more. And then you wake up in the morning, I didn't want this. I didn't want to wake up. Didn't we have this conversation? And if some of you are there tonight, talk to a staff member. Talk to one of us. I I think we can all relate at that point. Like, life is just too painful. I am so done. But Elijah wakes up, and and he's alive. He's not dead. And God has provided food for him and something to drink. And then he doesn't stay there. He travels 40 more miles, or 40 more days and nights, and he goes to a place called Horeb, or Mount Sinai. For some, some of you who are more familiar with the Bible, this is the place where Moses saw the burning bush and God said, go and set the peop- my people free. This is a place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So in the Israelite culture, this was a place where God kind of hung out. This is where they knew, this is where God was. And so when Elijah went there, he wanted to go there and to die and be with God. Like this would be the most holy place to die is like, let me just die and be with God on this mountain. So now, I hope you followed all that story. Now we're going to read this chunk of scripture and unpack it for you to see more about how Elijah bought into this lie that he was the only one. And so if you think the story was a little crazy with the fire, it gets a little crazier. So um, it's still totally true. Please follow me. Um, don't, don't, don't give up. Don't check out because this is true. So this is in 1 Kings 19, verses 9 through 18. <clears throat> it says, the word of the Lord came to him. Okay, so this is Elijah. Remember, he's on the mountain. He's alone on this mountain, on Mount Sinai. He says, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He replied, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord just said to him, go back the way you came. And there's some verses that I omitted because it's places we've never heard of and people that are hard to pronounce. And so essentially what God is saying is, this person that's in charge over here and ruling over here, I've got this guy that's going to take his place. And over here, this person's in charge. No, that's not going to happen any longer. This person's going to be in charge. And Elijah, I actually have someone that's going to succeed you as well. I've got a plan. And then he says in verse 18, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, so you might be thinking, what in the world did you just read? Um, So we're going to go verse by verse and kind of pick this apart. So in verse 9... It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So since you're like, Elijah, why are you hiding? You are miles and miles away from where you should be because you're scared. And I don't know about you, but I can really relate to this, that the lies that spin around in my mind often have me running and isolating myself, running mentally in my mind, running physically from friends and family and people who will speak the truth to me, running emotionally, just running away. And God's saying, Elijah, why did you run? Why? And Elijah gives him an answer. In verse 10, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I mean, that is a very bleak and dire situation. People are dying, things are getting torn up, and he's alone. Elijah did what a lot of times we do too. We give God information. God, you don't know. My class, my professor, my parents, my roommates. This exam, this midterm, like, can I just tell you? I just need to get it out, God. This is what is going on. And he's like, and Elijah's like, and you expect me to stay with that threat on my life? That you want me to stay when all of this is going on? Yeah, I don't think so. God, are you paying attention to my life? I think you've just turned a blind eye, or maybe you've just decided, oh, that's messy down there. I don't want to look at that anymore. See, Elijah had some facts, but his interpretations of the facts were totally wrong. And we look at that situation, we look at Elijah, we're like, Elijah, yeah, what were you thinking? Fire had just come down from heaven, birds had fed you, like all these different ways God had provided from you, and you run away. After all that you've been through, you had the upper hand. You were the one who saw, called down fire from heaven. God answered you. So it's like, from God's perspective, you have them right where you want them. And from Elijah's perspective is, from my perspective, God, no, no, I'm the only one. From my perspective, Nothing's going to change. From my perspective, these people are evil and depraved, and I don't want to be around them anymore. From my perspective, you don't really care. And then God does something really creative to get Elijah's attention. 
He uses nature. In verses 11 through 13, he jogs Elijah's memory about who he is and his power. And the Lord said to him, Okay, Elijah, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. I don't know where you guys grew up, but I grew up in Tornado Alley. And winds like you have never seen before that will pick up semi-trucks and toss them. Like farm animals, cattle will end up multiple pastures away. I mean, they're dead because that kind of wind force. And then they fall like from the the swirling thing in the sky. Like things are picked up and just tossed for miles after a tornado. That gale force, you don't ever want to be in. When I, or hurricane, I've never been in a hurricane. I've just been in a tornado. And it is just like wind, like I never want to experience again in my life. And you think only God can stop that wind. God's the only, nothing man can do can stop that kind of wind. This wind tore the mountain apart. Like that's some severe wind. But it says, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And then after the wind, there was an earthquake. And those of us who've lived out here long enough have felt the ground just shake. And there's nothing stable. And you're like, when is this? You just want to hold on to something. When is this going to stop? You just feel like everything is off kilter. You know, only God can stop an earthquake. Only God can start an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. And I've never, I've never been in a fire. But, but God started the fire and stopped the fire on himself. But the Lord wasn't in the fire either. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went and he stood in the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So it seems like God may have, like, changed the subject in this. Like, okay, we're talking about your life, Elijah, and then it's like, stand at the mouth of the cave. Okay, this is going to be a lesson that you're not going to forget. And God gave Elijah a not-so-gentle reminder of how powerful and great and how able and how capable God Almighty is. Elijah, if there is not me, God Almighty, then I understand why you're here. If I don't have power to cause fire to come down from heaven or the earth to shake or the wind to just destroy things, then it makes sense why you have fled and why you want to die. But if I am who I say I am, and if I can rescue you, then why have you run away, Elijah? In light of who I am, what in the world are you doing here, Elijah? I don't get it. And I think for all of us, when we reach that place of like, I don't know why I'm, I've so separated myself and isolated myself, because that's what we do when we're in pain. I mean, if you've ever had like a really bad stomach, you end up in like the fetal position just trying to curl in on yourself. Like pain makes us so myopic that we think about ourselves and we just slowly back away. Maybe not slowly, maybe sometimes quickly run away from people and from things that can really help us. The same thing that Elijah needed is exactly the same thing we need. Elijah needed the gentle reassurance that God was God and God was in control and that he was able. And the same whisper comes to us when we open the scripture day by day and are reminded that God is able, that God has strength beyond our comprehension, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and he can do it that there isn't a reason to fear. Aaron, why are you here? I'm confused. And then all my information that I pass on to God just kind of pales in comparison. So we see Elijah give the exact same response to the question. So in verse 14, he says, again, let me spell out to you, God, why I'm here and what's been going on. 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. It's like, do I need to remind you again, God? I'm it. The last man standing, that's me. And now they're trying to kill me. So if they kill me, I don't know who you've got on your team. Elijah repeatedly vented his frustrations. And isn't it neat that, that God in his kindness listens, that he listens to us too when we tell him the same thing again and again. Like, the situation has not changed with my parents. Could you really do something about this? I really don't like this professor. You know, we just feel like we need to get it out of our system. He listens. He cares. He knows. And I think as Elijah... I don't know. I, I'm really looking forward to heaven because I feel like a journalist. There's so many questions I have that I want to gather the facts. Like, what were you thinking in this minute, Elijah? I just don't understand. All of this isn't detailed out. But I'm wondering, as he was saying it the second time, if maybe he began to realize, okay, this doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, you just torn apart the mountain. Okay, but let me just tell you one more time. But as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, reminding myself, okay, yeah, I don't know why I'm here or what I'm doing here. Um, but for Elijah, God spoke to him audibly. And for us, God speaks to us through his word, that he will recalibrate our perspective, that he will remind us of his power over our circumstances. He brings it all into perspective as we spend time in his word, that Elijah needed to encounter God, and so do we, day after day after day. And so we see that in verse 15. And then God gives Elijah these instructions. Okay, I've heard for the second time what's going on. You think I'm unaware, and the Lord says to him, Elijah, go back the way you came. you got to go back. You can't stay on this mountain and die. I have more things in store for your life than death on this mountain. Go back and start over. God had a plan. And those verses that we admitted, you can, you can read them another time. Like people and kings that were in charge, God was rearranging things and restructuring things. God had a plan. Never for an instant was God not on the throne and not in control. And we have to remind ourselves that too, because sometimes it feels like, excuse me, where are you? I need your help over here, over here. And, and God is fully tuned in, never distracted, never overwhelmed with your life and the circumstances of your life. And so he invites us to go to him to recalibrate our perspective, that God is asking us the same question. If I'm not real, and if I don't have power, then yeah, it makes sense for you to be stressed out, worried, anxious, and isolate yourself from other people and to run away. That makes a lot of sense, but that's not true because I am real and I'm interested in your life and I am able. These situations that look impossible are not impossible because I am who I say I am and I can do what I say I can do. I am the same God who rained down fire from heaven. That is me. I have a plan and you can trust my plan. And he reminds Elijah, in that verse 18, I reserve 7,000 Israel. You think you're the only one? You have no idea. There are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. They're not bowing down to an idol. They have not kissed him and worshipped him. No, their hearts belong to me. You think you're the only one, Elijah? No, no, you have misunderstood. You've become so myopic that you have thought, think that things are so bad that you just want to die. But things are never as bad as they appear from God's perspective, right? Our circumstances look so bleak. And then we factor God and we're like, oh yeah, this is God who can move mountains and I'm worried about this. Yeah, like Elijah, we can relate to him far more than we think we can, right? It's interesting that in our lives, what I've seen through in my own life is that God often shows up in the form of another person whose story I hear and I think, wow, I thought that I 
would just be torn apart by the pain in my life. And then I hear their story, and I hear how God brought them through, and I'm reminded that that same God who saw them through that trial can see me through mine, that he has not left me alone. He has not abandoned me, even though I have wanted to be left alone and even to die. That in isolation, our discouragement and our worry and our fear is so magnified that we just lose sight of what's important. We lose sight of how big and able God is. And when I'm isolated, I'm so easily defeated. Over and over again, isolation leads to defeated, defeatment. Um, Solomon, who was king before Ahab, wrote this great little sentence that fits so perfectly in what we're talking about tonight. In Proverbs 18.1, he says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So he's saying, when you're in pain, it makes sense. You think, the best thing I can do is just to turn in on myself, to hunker down, and to just back up, to lean away from people and to lean out. That makes sense to me in my heart. But sound judgment is really wisdom. And so it's kind of the image that I had in my mind, maybe because I watched too many like um, not, not so, like happy ending thrillers. It's like being abducted and then being, like people come in like, the Navy SEALs come in to, to save me, but I don't realize that it's not my captors anymore, but these are the men to save me, and I'm just fighting against them. They're like, no, no, we're here to help. So kind of in our isolation, we're like, no, no, I've got it. I've got to back up. This is the way to deal with it. I just need to figure out what to do. And God says, no, no, it, what you need to do is you need to lean in. You need to listen to me. You need to lean in and not lean out. But in the moment, what makes sense to us is to isolate ourselves. And God's saying, no, no, real wisdom is leaning in and not leaning out. So... The resist and replace element of the lie number five of I'm the only one is to lean in and listen to God and community. Because our tendency is to lean out and to listen to people who will join our pity party. Like, I only want to be around people who will be like, yes, oh, that's just awful. Yes, you, should, you shouldn't talk to those friends because that was, they just don't understand or all these different things. We want people to kind of nurse our wounds and help them just stay festered and unhealthy because our gut reaction really is to pull away. But when we bring it into the light and we allow other people to know what's going on and to speak truth into our life and bring it before God like Elijah did, wow, we find perspective and we find help and we find the reminder that God is who he is and he is capable. So you may be asking, and even if you're not asking, I'm going to ask it for you. How, Aaron, after you've said all this about this craziest story ever, um, how do you lean in and listen to God and community? What would that look like? I'm so glad that you asked this question. Um, so some advice from me to you. The first thing is make some one-time decisions. So what that would look like is Every week, you don't have to decide about life group or challenge or church. You just decide, like, from here on out, regardless of midterms, regardless of assignments, regardless of last-minute things that come up with my friends, great concerts, award-winning artists, all sorts of other things. Like, I'm just going to be committed to being in a place where I can hear truth in a way that brings me perspective and reminds me of who I am and who God is and what he is able to do. Because when we worship and we gather with other people, we're reminded of God's faithfulness. We need each other to hear that. And so for me, what that looks like is I'm, I'm very grateful for Neil. On Thursday mornings, I leave earlier than I do any other day of the week, and I go to a women's Bible study. And it is like 
It is like my brook, or the raven, no, I'm just kidding. Um, right? I drink from the, from the brook. Um, no, it is so good for me, and I absolutely love it. And you know what it means? It means my alarm went off at 5.20 this morning, and I needed to prep for this message because I was committed to being at that Bible study, unless I'm vomiting or something else is happening that's like very contagious or life-threatening. I am going to be with that group of women because what it has served for me is as a place to be in the scripture and be reminded of who God is, but also to be reminded that my pain is not really that different from other people's pain, that God uses suffering in all of our lives to make us more like him. And so it gets me outside of myself. I'm with women who, who don't have any hair because of cancer treatment, women who've just buried their husbands, women who's, who are married to men who are not following Jesus and whose lives are rough and tough. And I get to enter into their lives and pray for them. And we get to open up God's word together and are challenged and encouraged and reminded, like, this is not my home, that God has a place prepared for me, and I will one day be free of this body that doesn't want to work and um, these trials and stresses here on earth. And so I would just challenge you to make some one-time decisions regarding your spiritual life that will really help you grow and connect more deeply with God and with each other. The second thing is, have a plan for consistent daily time in the scriptures so God can speak to you. So you need to have a plan for consistent daily time in scripture so God can speak to you. Many, many years ago when I did Project Impact as a junior in college, the leader of Project Impact told me that for the rest of our lives, we will struggle with consistency. And that, that has proven very true. But there are just things that crop up, like, you know, that snooze button Sometimes I think the enemy uses that in my life. It's like, just nine more minutes. I don't know why it's not 10. One of you computer science people, would you make the app be 10? I would like to wake up on even numbers. You know, like, just like anything, any excuse to stay in bed. Oh, only on things that end in five. You know, like all these different things. But spending time with God will really recalibrate you and set your heart to really walk with God and to approach the day with his perspective. Because our perspective gets distorted all throughout the day. And there are things that happen that we just build walls up in our hearts and in our minds towards God and towards other people. And so spending daily time with God can really help bring perspective. And so I would highly encourage you to develop a plan, maybe talk to a friend and, and build some, maybe you can text each other early in the morning, like, are you awake? Um, you take them off the do not disturb and then when you've got on do not disturb, it'll still go through. And you can be like, wake up, it's time to be with Jesus. And then the last thing is, have intentional conversations with your friends. Have intentional conversations with your friends. Let them in, not just idle chit-chat like, hey, I think the second flood is coming tomorrow. If you guys have listened to the weather, it's like, oh, the rain, it's coming, we're going to drown. Like, get a rowboat because you're not going to be able to drive. Like, I don't know, it, it, L.A. weather just makes it sound like doomsday. But talk about more things than just the rain, the weather. Be real. Be honest. Even if there are no like, big things going on in your life, have a preemptive conversation that, like, I really value you as a friend. And so I know that life's eventually going to get hard. Things are going to come up that I, I don't understand that are going to be painful. But would you be a friend in my life who will speak truth to me when I don't want to hear it? Will you be a friend to remind me of who God is when I have lost total sight of that and I have leaned out so far I'm about to fall over because I want to distance myself because the pain's too great? Would you be a friend that reaches and says, no, no, you're leaning, you're leaning back, come back in. Lean in and listen. 
Those are the kinds of friends we have. So even if it's not tough right now, or maybe it is tough right now, you just need to pull a friend aside and be like, can we get coffee? There's some things I just need to talk about. But develop friendships where you talk about things that are really important, what's really going on in your life, because that will be such an encouragement to you and to other people as well. So remember the words of wise King Solomon, who I think he would have uttered these to Elijah had he heard Elijah say, I'm the only one left. He would say in Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. It makes sense to isolate ourselves because of our, the sin in our heart, but don't do it. Because really what you're doing is you're breaking out against all sound judgment. You're just fighting against the wisdom and the plan of God in your life. God wants us to lean in and to listen to him and to people who can point us to him. So remember, when your tendency is to lean out and to build the walls and to separate yourself and to isolate yourself, and your friends will be asking, oh, what are you doing out all the way over here? To come back in, to lean in, because there is a God who loves you, who is for you, and who has a plan for your life. When it looks as bleak as it's ever looked before, there's, remember, there could be 7,000 that you don't even know about, that from God's perspective, you don't even see. And so remember that he is big and he is able. So let me pray, and then we will invite back up the worship team. Father, what a privilege it is to share this truth from your word. I am just humble and amazed, God, that you would preserve your word and that you would leave it for us to be encouraged just with your might and your power, that you are God Almighty and you are able. So would you remind us in those times when we, like Elijah, have just lost sight of who you are and what you're able to do, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you are in us, and that we can trust you. The stories that you're writing in our life are much bigger. And so when we feel like we're the only one, remind us of the 7,000. Would you knit hearts together in this room of friends who will point each other to Jesus till their dying breath, that, that they would just commit to each other that when you're down, I'm going to pull you back in so we're leaning in together. And so I thank you for this group that's assembled here tonight. I pray that we would be a group that would point each other to you over and over and over again. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.